Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. We're a week out from polling day, but we're going to do some counterfactuals. Not what's going to happen, but what would have happened if Remain had won the referendum, or if Corbyn hadn't got on the ballot paper for the Labour leadership, or if Scotland was already independent. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, it's thought that counts. Give everyone you know a subscription to the LRB for just $19.99. And they'll throw in a free 2020 calendar featuring some of the best of their fantastic cover art. Find this special festive offer at lrb.me forward slash Christmas. I'm here with Helen. It's just going to be the two of us today. And we're going to explore this in reverse order. So going back from the Brexit referendum through to Corbyn and then the Scottish independence referendum. There are a couple of broad themes that we think are interesting here, one of which is about how much the current election is to do with contingencies. It's an unusual election, the two leading candidates to be Prime Minister, frankly the only candidates to be Prime Minister, are very unusual politicians and British politics feels very divided by these personalities. But there's a real question about whether deeper forces are at work here. That sounds sinister, not in the paranoid sense. And British politics is where it's at because of things that in some ways predate the rise of Corbyn and Johnson. The other question, one I've been interested in for a long time, and this election really seems to bring it into focus, is what would it take to break the stranglehold of the two main parties? Because we keep seeming to be on the cusp of Labour and the Conservatives losing their grip on British politics, one or other or both, and another party coming through. And yet it never happens. And it's not happening now. We'll come on to the Liberal Democrats at the end. But is that because of the electoral system? Or is that because actually we are, as a nation, divided by the things that these two parties represent and everyone else is just playing for the scraps? So, Helen, let's start with 2016. And I think we feel these are hypotheticals that aren't outlandish. I mean, Remain could easily have won that referendum. There are lots of people, and they may even include Dominic Cummings, who believe that Remain should have won that referendum if only they'd run a decent and shrewd campaign. So let's assume, however they did it, that David Cameron on the morning after the 23rd of June was the victor by a small amount or by a larger amount, remains as Prime Minister. What do you think would have been, from there to now, the most different features of our politics? Well, I think the first thing that would have happened is that UKIP wouldn't have collapsed in the way in which it did between 2016 and 2017. Um, because Farage made it clear when he thought that Leave had lost on the referendum night that he didn't regard that as the end of the matter. And he was clearly channelling the Scottish referendum result at that point, the assumption being you lose and you use it as a platform to have another go. Absolutely. I think then a lot would have turned on how Cameron responded to the referendum in the sense that he had already made clear that he, he didn't want to serve a full term and he was looking for a successor, and obviously he wanted that successor to be George Osborne. And I think you might say that he held the referendum in part as early as he did in the term because he wanted that out of the way in a way that would make it possible for Osborne. Now, I can't actually see that Osborne would have benefited from circumstances in which Remain won. So let's say it had been 52-48. Clearly, Osborne had made himself very unpopular with many in the parliamentary party, not just on the Leave side, over the threat of the what came to be called the punishment budget. Johnson would have been in a in a good position to 
to challenge him, having sort of channeled, if you like, Euroscepticism in the Conservative Party. We shouldn't leave Theresa May out of this picture because she still would have wanted to become leader and she would have thought that she kept her powder dry, so to speak, during the referendum campaign. But I still think that there's there's a case that we still would have ended up with Johnson as leader of the Conservative Party. The caveat to that would have to be, were there enough Conservative MPs who had such doubts about his character that it would have triumphed over their wanting a more Eurosceptic leader and that he then wouldn't have got into the final two that went to the Conservative members. But I still think it's a plausible scenario that Johnson would have become leader. But I don't think it's plausible that he would then have been committed to holding another referendum quickly. I think Farage would have played that role with UKIP. Johnson's critics always say that it's all about personal ambition for him and that it's all about plotting to get to where he is now, which is to be Prime Minister. But Johnson, like everyone else, assumed that he was on the losing side in that referendum. I mean, he must have in his own mind thought that losing the Brexit referendum was still a plausible path for him to the leadership. And I'm assuming that one of the reasons that that's true is he knew as well as anyone did that that referendum lost empowered Nigel Farage. And so he would be in a position not dissimilar from what's happened in 2019, which is the Tory party, faced with a resurgent Farage, needs to find a leader who can put Farage back in his box. And Johnson is that person. So 2016, it would have come sooner than it did in 2019. But after all, the reason that Johnson is Prime Minister today is because six months ago, Nigel Farage was polling at 30%. And presumably, if the Brexit referendum had been lost by the Leave side, Farage would have been polling at 30% six months after the referendum. Yeah, that bit, I think, is is a little bit harder to say one way or the other. I think 30% might be a bit on the high side. And I don't think actually it can be separated out from what would have happened to Labour if Remain had won the election. But I think that we have to bear in mind that what happened after Theresa May couldn't get the withdrawal agreement through and Britain didn't leave by the end of March was quite literally the near collapse of the Conservative Party, I mean, down to, what was it, 8% in the European Parliament elections. I mean, the Conservative Party's never looked, if you like, existential death in the face like it did in those months after the failure to leave the European Union by the end of March this year. I think that the difficult thing would have been for a Johnson-led Conservative Party is if you look, if you bring in what what had happened in the EU since and the fact that what could have been a potential crunch point in 2018 if we'd had the German and French elections play out in the way in which that they did, in which that was used then as momentum and um, without Brexit for trying to resolve the question that the five presidents report on the future of the euro had identified. I think that had come out in 2015 of like, could you have a, a European Union that continued to be multi-currency? If you had a the EU trying to resolve that question, then that would have given Johnson some opportunities to demonstrate his Eurosceptic credentials and perhaps even to implicitly return the question of whether Britain should still be in the European Union. But given, I think, that the domestic politics of Germany in particular meant that that question was going to continue to be fudged, then you'd have been looking at quite a lot of stasis anyway, I think, in within the European Union. And then what opportunities for demonstrating Eurosceptic credentials would a Prime Minister Johnson have had? And that would have been, I think, to Farage's advantage. On the other hand, I still think expecting the Conservative Party's voters to peel away in which the way that they did after March in circumstances in which it wasn't existential is a bit much. 
And then what about the parliamentary party itself? So you said Cameron in part thought that this was a genius strategy to get George Osborne to succeed him. One of the things that should have signalled to him that it wasn't a genius strategy was that George Osborne was begging him not to do it. He thought the referendum, if we're to believe Cameron's memoirs, he thought that the referendum was a bad idea, partly because he thought it might be lost. And George Osborne was a much shrewder judge of these things than Cameron was. What we learned subsequent to the referendum with the emergence of the ERG as a force in British politics is that within the Conservative Parliamentary Party, there were deep divisions and some people who were prepared to take the Tory party to the edge of the cliff. I mean, the existential crisis was not just produced by Farage, it was produced by the ERG as well. If Britain had voted to remain in the European Union, that group of people who for a long time had been playing a long game to achieve Brexit, where would they have gone? Would, would it have yeah. been more or less acute, do you think? I think that that's hard to judge because I think that what had happened with Douglas Carswell in particular had shown the you know immense difficulties of anybody trying to work with Farage, that Farage had turned UKIP into a personality cult and that it had been quite difficult, pretty much impossible for Carswell as a former Conservative inside UKIP to do anything about that. So I think that that would have been a some kind of deterrent effect on Conservatives of the ERG kind, but I think that the it, it would have been still pretty risky for cons- for those sort of Steve Baker types to have thought about defecting to UKIP, and if they got Johnson as a leader, they could be I think reasonably optimistic that another chance would would have come. As I say, though, I think the question of whether it would would really be dependent on what was going on in the European Union rather than what was going on in on in British politics. And I think on the question about what Cameron thought he was doing, I don't think he thought that the the referendum would help Osborne. I think he thought that tactically having it earlier in the Parliament, getting out of the way before it became Osborne's problem, was worth it. And the fact that they disagreed with each other, you know, it says something both about Cameron and about Osborne's judgment. Cameron, I think, saw more clearly what the structural problem of consent to Britain's membership was and that at some point it had to be faced whereas Osborne saw more clearly that the answer to that structural problem might be out and then the Conservative Party had a problem. It does raise the question that I flagged up at the beginning what would it take to break the stranglehold of the two main parties? UKIP would be a very different case than a centre party like the Liberal Democrats trying to break that stranglehold. It's at least possible under this scenario, maybe they don't get to 30%, but they get past that threshold. There is a threshold which is somewhere, it's above 20, and it's somewhere between 20 and maybe 26, 27, where third parties break through. So the old SDP never quite got over that threshold. They they came very close. The Liberal Democrats have come close, but they've never quite got over it, where you go from 20, 30, 40, 50 seats to over 100 seats. It is at least possible especially given that UKIP were running second in a lot of constituencies, that if anger built up, and it didn't just have to be around the European Union, but anger built up on that side of politics against an establishment stitch-up framed, however Farage wants to frame it, that UKIP of all of the parties that could have made that breakthrough, though it was a personality cult, and though it has the problems that once it starts selecting candidates to win 100-plus seats, some of those candidates are pretty flaky, and vulnerable to being exposed, unprofessional. 
it could have done it. I mean, of all the parties, is that not the one that had the best chance? I think it, it definitely did have some potential, not least because it would, I think, under a scenario in which Remain had won, have probably started taking even more former Labour votes than it was already doing by 2015. I mean, in 2015, it's clear that UKIP did at least as much damage to Labour, possibly actually more at the constituency level than it did to the Conservatives. And so you would have to ask if it was 52-48 to remain and you still had a pretty significant proportion of Labour Leave voters and indeed those who'd already, say, defected from Labour in 2015 for um, UKIP, that Farage would have consolidated that group of voters and it could have taken off enough new Conservative voters to push it in, uh, certainly above 20%. I don't think that that's, that's um, difficult to see at all. Then I think the question is, is well, what would Labour have done under circumstances in which... They could Remain be potentially had, replaced as the main opposition yeah, party. Yeah, there was a scenario, I think, in which th- that they could have been, but it would have depended on would the Parliamentary Labour Party have reacted to Remain winning with Corbyn having performed the way in which he did during the referendum campaign in the same way as they reacted to Leave winning... Or would it have been the case that they didn't and at the same time that Corbyn's reaction to it was actually to say, look, we've got a problem here with Labour Leave voters and that we need to move Labour further to being a bit more Eurosceptic, particularly when it comes to immigration issues. So that takes us to the the Corbyn counterfactual. Like you say, these things are so complicated because Corbyn with a winning Remain campaign, though it would have been presumably the same Corbyn campaigning in the same way, then is potentially at least for UKIP propaganda complicit in some kind of establishment stitch-up. When Leave wins, Corbyn looks like a sort of half-hearted Remainer and gets the blame from the other side. He's in a pretty unenviable position. After Leave won, he looked very weak, and he was pretty weak, but then the membership came to his rescue. Once Corbyn becomes a candidate for the membership, as we know it was constituted by 2015, thanks to Ed Miliband allowing not just members, but people paying a very nominal fee to get a chance to vote for the leader. I think with hindsight, we can see that Corbyn is going to win those elections. The counterfactual is that he came very close not to being on the ballot at all. And this, to me, is the interesting one. So you have that membership, a membership which, given the chance to make Corbyn the leader, will do so and will continue to do so. One has to assume it were even after this election, whatever happens. He still seems to be well supported by the members. But with a few minutes to go before the close of nominations, you needed 35 Labour MPs to get the correct percentage of the party, 15%, to go to the members. Corbyn was a few votes short and then he was given votes by people like Frank Field and Margaret Beckett they thought in the belief not that he could possibly win, but that it would open up, as they put it, the debate. And then the rest is history. You know, it doesn't have to be some elaborate scheme to work out that Margaret Beckett, with 10 minutes to go, doesn't quite get there, and he falls a vote short. And so what goes to the members, what would have happened is that that membership would have had to choose between Andy Burnham, Yvette Cooper, and Liz Kendall. So that membership will pick between those three, We know it's a Corbynite membership, but we only call it that because Corbyn was allowed to bring out its true character. 
you might disagree on this. My guess is that probably Andy Burnham would have won. I think Andy Burnham would have won, yeah. What would have happened? <laughs> <laughs> we're going backwards and then we're going forwards. I think that um, it's pretty hard to see how Labour wouldn't have stayed stuck in the problems it was already in in 2015 because 2015 was a shocking result for Labour, whichever way that you want to think about it. And I think that if you say, like, what was the structural context, if you like, in which Corbyn won, given that he was on the ballot, you know, it was in part precisely because Labour had done so badly and it seemed so difficult to get to the point where they were going to win over the next election that enough members thought we might as well move the party to the left and in some senses they sort of get the Labour Party back again from the grips of, of the new Labour project and its remnants in, in Ed Miliband and at the same time it's very difficult to see that Andy Burnham or indeed any either of the other two would have had anything um, seen what could be done about the Scotland problem because Labour's vote had collapsed in, in Scotland. So a scenario I think in which one of these people, let's say it's Andy Burnham, has to go into fighting the 2016 referendum with more enthusiasm as a Romania than Corbyn would have done, but with much the same problems, including the split in the Labour base between its Remain and Leave voters. We've got to say, I think, well, what would be the response to, let's say for the moment we drop our first counterfactual and Leave actually carries on winning in, in 2016, you know, like what would Anthony Burnham have done? And um, would he have been able to say, look, the Labour Party has to be a party that accepts the result of the referendum and we go on from there? Or would he have been actually subject to all the same pressures of being pulled in two different directions that, that Corbyn has been? And I think there is a case that actually the same dynamic would have played itself out, that the let's have a second referendum people would have put ongoing pressure on an Andy Burnham leadership that would have actually wanted to accept the referendum result and Labour would be stuck exactly where it is and over Brexit now. It wouldn't have some of the issue, other issues that it has now, but I still think it would have much the same problem in Scotland. It would have the same problems over Brexit. What it wouldn't have is a leader that is disliked so much on foreign policy, national security grounds, however we want to label those other problems that Corbyn has. OK, not so disliked by the people who dislike Corbyn on those grounds, but would not a gap have opened up between the membership and the leadership? Because we know that there's a deep affinity between the membership and Corbyn's leadership. Corbyn is not on the ballot, same membership, people who would like to vote for someone like who really wanted change in 2015 and to signal that the party was going to try and be a very different kind of party. They were all continuity candidates. Liz Kendall was continuity Blair, so she couldn't win with that membership. Cooper was continuity Brown, in a way, and Burnham is sort of somewhere in between. But they were all former ministers in governments that are increasingly unpopular with that membership would not a gap have opened up? And part of the reason I ask this is in the broader context. You know, Some people think, well, Corbynism is a sort of accident of recent British political history, some weird coming together. Miliband made a mistake by opening up the membership to entryism. This is the criticism. And then a candidate comes in and there's this accidental marriage and here we are. But Corbynism is at work everywhere. The German SPD has just gone far left. The Democrats in the United States are 
thinking about nominating candidates who may well be left in the way that Corbyn is, because there is a groundswell of that kind of left politics. And Burnham is not that. In one sense, I agree. I think the other way of thinking about it, though, is that Corbyn absolutely expanded the membership and the three-pounders, the three-pound voters. By the fact of his being on the ballot. By the fact of his being on the ballot. So the very act of him being on the ballot is radicalising the membership base and and the additional base on top of that of the Labour Party. And I should um, say it's true, I believe that the people who were members originally were much more evenly split between the candidates. Some of them did vote Corbyn, but I think Burnham in particular was quite strong with what you might call long-standing Labour members. So having said that, I think you're right that there's something that's going on here that goes way beyond the particularities of British politics, that the problems that centre-left parties have as an electoral coalition have led in a number of cases to one part of it, let's call it, sort of dominated by urban millennials in particular, but not only so, are taking these parties in a long-term different direction than where they have been and making it much harder for them to be cross-class coalitions as they um, used to be. And I think if, if you look in the in the British case, actually, the, the structural causes of this are probably as deep as they are anywhere else because here you had that big expansion of university education in the 90s and you had the largest fall in home ownership rates and therefore the biggest growth in private, or not necessarily therefore, and the biggest growth in, in private renters anywhere in the European Union after 2008. So if you say, like, what is the material basis of this new left-wing politics, I think that Britain probably has as deeper reasons as any as any country for having gone in this direction and that completely I think transcends the Jeremy Corbyn issue but whether it would have manifested itself in a Burnham-led Labour Party with a lot fewer members who were radicalised in the same way I think might be open to question you might have seen something more like a resurgence not a resurgence but a movement towards the Greens as a possibility in British politics. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. We'll come back to this. I talk about it all the time, the incredible disciplining effect that First Past the Post has on voter behavior because as it gets closer to a general election, the choice gets more and more binary and fracturing parties come back together under a different electoral systems, you get very different results. So France would be one where, I mean, I don't know who the Andy Burnham is of French politics, but <laughs> whatever that represents, an attempt to hold together the coalition from somewhere in the middle of it fails, and it completely breaks, and it goes Macron one way and Mélenchon the other way. And Burnham is neither Macron nor Mélenchon. But our electoral system makes that break much, much less likely because Burnham still will be one of two candidates were he to be leader. 
had he been leader back then to be prime minister. And he's not an implausible prime minister. He's a pretty plausible mayor of Greater Manchester. Are there circumstances, I'm sorry, obsessed with this question, are there circumstances in which these, so, so one possibility is a third party comes through. The other possibility is one of the two main parties break. Mm. I tend to agree with you that the Tories wouldn't break even after a Remain victory, that the ERG wouldn't split away. The parliamentary party, the Labour Party, would be unlikely to break because it was still made up primarily of people like Andy Burnham. But those pressures are acute. I mean, they're acute around Europe, but they're acute because of proportional systems or presidential systems with multi-state or two-stage elections. Are there, would anything break one of the two main parties that could have happened in the last three or four years? I tend not to think so, but I... I tend in one way not to think so, but I think we do have to factor in that a main party, in fact, both main parties in different ways over different periods of time did break in Scotland. In Scotland, it proved possible for you know, a party that essentially been the third or even the fourth party to come through by 2015 and win all but one of the seats. Do you think one of the conditions of that was another electoral system at work, which it was a staged process? And after all, before they did that, the SNP became the biggest party in Holyrood. And then, amazingly, under that electoral system, the majority party in Holyrood, it wasn't a, just a first-past-the-post break. I mean, clearly, it's not inconsequential that the Scottish Parliament has a different electoral system than, than first-past-the-post, but I don't think that's the fundamental cause. I mean, the fundamental cause is the fact that devolution gave the SNP an opportunity particularly when Labour, as the party that set up devolution, then carried on to be preoccupied in Scottish matters with Westminster politics and, and not with politics in Edinburgh. I think that's more important to what the SNP's success than the electoral system. I'm not saying it's, the electoral system is is inconsequential. I just think that there's a, an, another dynamic. I think the question on terms of England and Wales would be the UKIP question. And, and UKIP, I think... The place where it could have actually made maybe a breakthrough might actually have been Wales because UKIP was, A, shown itself to be as strong in electoral terms in Wales as it was anywhere else, but also you had some of the same issues going on with the decline of Labour in Wales that we've seen in Scotland and a situation in which post-2015, let's say a scenario in which Remain had won but Wales had still voted leave. It's not at all difficult, I think, to see that you keep making some kind of breakthrough there. Now, that's not enough seats in itself, probably, to do that much, cause that much disruption at Westminster. But I think it, it would certainly have put, I think, the fear of God and the Labour Party if you'd seen a breakthrough of UKIP in, in Wales. One more thing on Burnham and then we'll do Scotland. Actual independence referendum, Scotland. It's often said of Corbyn, Corbyn is blamed by many people for Brexit happening. If only he'd campaigned more wholeheartedly, if he'd brought traditional Labour voters on side and so on. And so you said, let's run the two hypotheticals, but treat them as separate. So Burnham wins, but Brexit happens. And a lot of people will say, but no, if Burnham wins, not a lot of people, but some people, Burnham wins, Brexit doesn't happen because then the Labour Party has a full-throated Europeanist at its head and he mobilises the Labour vote. I'm pretty sceptical about that. If you think of what made the Leave campaign successful, it was to, even with Corbyn, to corral the main parties as a single, effectively, establishment voice and to mobilise people who were discontented for various reasons, but including on questions of sovereignty in Europe. 
with the long-term trajectory of British politics. In some ways, Burnham is a much clearer exemplification of that than Corbyn was. I mean, Corbyn sort of made it harder because things were clearly shifting even at the level of the establishment. Burnham, as some kind of continuity candidate out there, happily sharing a platform with Cameron and Osborne, or unhappily, but doing it because he's a professional politician, so doing it less grumpily than Corbyn did. I think Corbyn is unfairly blamed, actually, for Brexit. I think a, a more conventional Labour leader running a more conventional establishment campaign, Brexit might have won by more. It is, I mean, I think the, the question of the effect that Corbyn had on the organisational dynamics and sheer sort of day-to-day tactical operations of the Remain campaign, I think for those who support Remain, he can be pretty reasonably criticised if you read Tim Shipman's book. It's, it looks at times that you know they are actively trying to sabotage what was going on. But I think if you look at it in terms of voters, I agree with you that having somebody on the Remain side who wasn't very enthusiastic about the, the European Union may well have made it easier for some, at least, working-class Labour voters who were sceptical about the EU to actually to vote Remain. And it did make it a little bit harder simply to see that to, to present Remain as an establishment stitch-up. In case people think that we've over-Andy burnham this, I'm assuming that with Yvette Cooper it's roughly... Liz Kendall wasn't going to win that. So with Yvette Cooper, it's roughly the same story. They have different qualities as politicians. They have also different failings as politicians. They're not the total answer to anything. But the Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham scenario seemed to me to be broadly similar. Yeah, I mean, I think that the only thing you can say is, like, I think that both of them actually had some recognition of the difficulty that freedom of movement caused for Labour leavers and may have been more willing than Corbyn was on that particular issue to express some of the frustrations of Labour leave. But having said that, they wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. So in one sense, if if you say, yes, we understand, but actually the nature of the EU means that we can't actually do anything about it, that's not a very helpful message. The difference, of course, is that they both represent seats from the north. Yvette Cooper's in a strong, like, 72% leave seat. So they both speak for somewhere outside of Islington. And that, again, I don't think it makes a huge difference, but it does change the dynamic. I mean, it is one of the features of the Corbyn leadership of the party that not just Corbyn, but all of the people closest to him at the top of the party represent constituencies that are more or less adjacent in North London. And that is the thing that has been lost in the last few years. I mean, again, it's swings and roundabouts, but a leadership of the Labour Party that represents the north of England has gone. I think as well, we really shouldn't underestimate the London-centric nature of the Corbyn leadership more generally. If you look at the number of those MPs who actually signed that ballot papers for him, they're disproportionately London-based too. And I think that if you say that a lot of the hope that was initially invested in, in Corbyn was that he was going to be able to resurrect the, if you like, the old Labour coalition, that isn't what has actually happened at all. Corbyn's success, such as it has been, has actually been in mobilising younger voters into the Labour Party. And again, lots of hope was invested from the people around Corbyn in saying, look, we have a left-wing politics, we can compete in Scotland again. Well, actually, that's turned out not to be true at all. And indeed, since someone quite Corbyn sympathetic has been the head of the, the Labour Party in Scotland, things have gone even worse than they did before. Let's do Scotland. This one is partly because we're going further back in time, but it would be a much bigger 
fork in the road, we would be in a very, very different country. Actually, we would literally be in a different country had Scottish independence won in 2014. It could have happened. There was a poll, and that people now say, oh, it was a rogue poll that put independence ahead. It probably wasn't a rogue poll. It captured something about the mood and the movement of public opinion. It then produced a response from the Westminster leaders who made a series of concessions in order to forestall an independence victory. But say, I mean, there is a scenario in which that poll doesn't come out, they don't make those concessions, and actually that was the movement, the direction of travel. Who knows? And it now looks, because it was 55-45, that it was a clear win. But I think it was closer, potentially. There were contingencies there. Let's say it happened. Let's say 50.5, 49.5. Independence wins that referendum. I don't think Cameron quits. I think there's a huge difference, I think, for the EU referendum. He felt at some level it, it was his gamble. And again, this one was his gamble, but he was clearly responding to a demand from another politician and another political party, and constitutionally and in other ways. There were real challenges in resisting that demand. I imagine that Cameron stays on, but very quickly British politics just completely changes its character. And in my mind, that one, it's almost impossible over five years to imagine where we would be because we're just in a different space completely, or are we not? No, absolutely. I mean, I actually think there's, it would have been reasonably plausible to imagine that Cameron would actually have resigned. What, the day, not the day after? Not immediately. What, even, even conceivably, from his point of view, that would have been a total, utter disaster. I mean, much worse, from actually, from his point of view than losing the, the referendum was. I mean, as his memoirs make clear, there's a there's an inner lever in Cameron where the European Union's concerned. He's unionist to the core of his being where Scotland's concerned. That's part of the reason why I think he might have stayed in that obviously a independence vote then opens up a whole range of possibilities and there is still something for him to defend even if he's not, well, he might even try and still defend the union, but even if it's not the union, he really believes in something about the relationship between England and Scotland in particular that he wouldn't want to just walk away from whereas with Brexit, as you said, there's part of him that just thinks, well, it happened. I mean, he looked like that. He looked like a guy who, well, it happened, someone else can work it out, but my heart's not broken. It's broken. I'm no longer Prime Minister, but I can live with the consequences. He may not have been able to live. Who knows? Who knows? I think we would have seen, and I think the, the um, what's happened since Brexit referendum has made this clearer, we would have seen a massive rearguard action, I think, to save the Union post the, the referendum. It wouldn't actually have straightforwardly been accepted. There would have been extremely complicated and fraught negotiations about what to do about a number of issues, not not least the fact that the SNP believed that it could stay in a currency union with the rest of the United Kingdom, and that was something that the British government said, and indeed the Bank of England said, couldn't happen. That essentially a withdrawal treaty of some kind would have to have been negotiated, it would have to have been ratified, and I think that we would have seen quite a lot of the same stuff that we've seen played out in some sense actually more fraught because the question about what to do about the currency question is actually more difficult to solve than the questions around how to leave the European Union in an orderly way. Do you think, say it had been 50.5, 49.5, would the unionists in Scotland, the group that had very narrowly lost, would they have mobilised in that way? I mean, for instance, would they have quite quickly been a group of lawyers trying to work out how to take this out of parliamentary politics and through the courts. Because that you know, that was a big part of what happens with the Remain resistance. It becomes legal versus plebiscitary with Parliament Court in between. Do you think we'd have seen something similar here? 
I mean, there is a unionist legal establishment in Scotland, yeah. as well as there being obviously a lot of nationalist lawyers. I think quite possibly, but I think that in the end, the crucial story about the resistance to refer- the referendum over Brexit hasn't come via the lawyers, it's come via Parliament. And that whilst initially, in Brexit case, um, the majority of MPs accepted the result and indeed voted by a fairly sizable majority to trigger Article 50, knowing, at least one hoped that they knew that that was going to lead to a moment where it was a question of choosing between withdrawal agreement, no deal or extension, the, if you like, the growing willingness of Parliament to resist really manifests itself after the 2017 election. And you could even argue that well into 2018 there was there was less resistance, you might say. It really manifests when the withdrawal treaty is first negotiated by Theresa May's government and we get into the votes around, you know, first meaningful vote, second meaningful vote, etc. And I think you would have seen it much, much earlier from within Parliament on the question of of Scottish independence, not least because it's an absolutely existential question for the Labour Party. You know, the Conservatives waited until, you know, like post-March 2019 to get to such an existential moment for them over Brexit, whereas it would have been instantly won for Labour. That was going to be my other question, which is, these things all connect. At least, it's at least possible. So Cameron's a real unionist and it's a disaster for him. There would be people in the Conservative Parliamentary Party. So in 2014, there isn't a winnable Brexit referendum on the horizon. It may be coming, but it's not immediate. A general election has to be got through first and who knows what will happen. But there will be people, say, in the ERG who see Scottish independence as the opportunity actually to get Brexit because without Scotland, it's a much more winnable-seeming referendum and also it changes the dynamics Whereas for the Labour Party, for Ed Miliband, who would still have been leader, the loss of the Scottish independence referendum would immediately have been a massive crisis. And he then has to make a big choice about whether the Labour Party can survive with England and Wales as a separate political unit. And I tend to agree with you. I think the Conservatives, Cameron, terrible for him, but for many Conservatives, there's a way of kind of making the best of this quote-unquote disaster. For Labour, there isn't. Yeah, I mean, I think that... The reason why I'm a little bit more sceptical on the Conservative side and why I still think it would be a disaster for them is is because there's the foreign policy dimension to it. There's a trident question. And it's not, not difficult, I think, to think that many of those people think whatever the electoral advantages, that this is, this is really problematic for our position within the Atlantic Alliance and NATO, etc. And, that, that, and that, that becomes more important to them than the question of what the immediate electoral benefits are. They might think that the electoral question is not as straightforward as it seems because one of the things that the 2017 election made clear is is that Labour could have a, only a modest recovery in Scotland to seven seats and Labour could still end up taking 40% of the vote. So if they had understood that there were other forces at work in England and Wales that were actually to Labour's advantage, particularly where younger voters are concerned, it's not a straightforward calculation that Scotland going ensures conservative electoral hegemony. Let's finish with a question I kind of started with, which is a 2019 question. And it's kind of a counterfactual too, I guess. Even a few weeks ago, there was a thought that the British electoral system might once again be 
vulnerable to a party outside the two main parties really making a kind of break for freedom and breaking through the Liberal Democrats. And a couple of polls were getting very close to Labour. And in this campaign, we've seen what happened in 2017, but we've seen what really almost always happens, not always, but almost always, which is that the two main parties have pulled away, the electorate has divided and has seen its choice as fundamentally a choice between particularly two prime ministers, but also two programmes. And the Liberal Democrats, they haven't fallen back to 2017 levels, but it seems we're a week out, we don't make predictions, but I'm going to predict that Joe Swinson is not going to be prime minister and that they may win a few seats. They maybe do a bit better than people are saying now, but there's not going to be a breakthrough. Already the blame game has started. Swinson was a mistake. Her style is a mistake. She's much more popular than people realised. The revoke policy was a mistake. All of these contingencies, they could have done this. What about this if they'd done that? And yet it doesn't feel like much of this was in their power to control. It feels to me like Ed Davey. It's not, it's not an Ed Davey counterfactual where suddenly he is on the cusp of becoming, maybe not prime minister, but breaking through. It looks structural to me, not either policy or personality driven. There's no way of knowing, but the issue is is that what the electoral system does is it imposes hard choices it imposes hard choices on voters and it imposes hard choices on, on politicians and ken clark gave an interview just a couple of days ago in which he defended first past the post on precisely these grounds and there's also quite a actually strong political science defense for it which is what it does is it makes the electorate face up yeah. to the fundamental choice and that that's its great advantage. I have to say, I read that Ken Clark thing this morning and actually it was a sort of conclusion I'd come to last week about that this is the advantage. This, this election may well actually be demonstrating the advantages of first past the post, even though that's a kind of perverse thing to say given some of the difficulties that have been created um, by the party leaderships under these um, uh, conditions. Perverse given the choice. I mean, to me, that's what makes it perverse. So it forces people to make a choice, but a choice between what are, for most people, unpalatable options. But I think that the Liberal Democrats' problem is essentially that they did not accept that this is what the first-past-the-posting system does. And so if we say that there were basically three big issues, there's the Brexit question, there's the Corbyn as Prime Minister question, and there's the union question um, where Scotland's concerned. And the Liberal Democrats appeared, I thought, for some time this year, somewhat before they moved to the revoke position, to be prioritising the anti-Corbyn position. And they could do that actually via Brexit too, so in that sense it disguised the fact that there was a hard choice going on. But once that they moved to the revoke position and I would say the Remain Alliance, and in particular perhaps the Remain Alliance, they essentially moved themselves to a position where they were saying Brexit was the be-all and the end-all. And a Corbyn prime ministership might be the collateral price uh, might you pay. Be the pri- and might be, but, but they didn't want to say that. They still wanted simultaneously to try to hold on to their anti-Corbyn credentials. But the problem was, aside from the fact, I think, that they ducked making the choices of prioritising between those three issues, is that the seats where they had a path to victory were seats that had to be taken from the Conservatives, predominantly. And that meant taking votes from Conservative Remainers. And if you look at the Conservative Remainers, they seem quite clearly to prioritise being anti-Corbyn over being 
anti-Brexit, they're making that hard choice. And so if you're the Liberal Democrats and you need those voters in order to win seats in this electoral system, then you have to cater to those priorities. And it seems to me that a number of missteps have been made where they think that they can have it always. And that means is that the path for them to Brexit had to run through holding a second referendum on Johnson's withdrawal agreement and winning enough Conservative seats in order to deprive the Conservatives of the majority that way and then make holding a second referendum a condition of supporting a Johnson government. From what I've heard, two things seem to have led them down the path that they've taken, one of which is, and Swinson has said when she was asked, why did you go for revoke? She said, I'm not going to quote her exactly, but the donors liked it. I think people underestimate the extent to which political parties are partly conditioned by the preferences of the people who give them financial support. And that's true of the Liberal Democrats as well. And there's also polling evidence, if the question is framed right, that you can get up to 30% of people saying they're in favour of revoke. I think that's very soft polling. Um, but for the reason that you It's neither say. here nor there, though, I think, is whether people are in favour of revoke. Because it's not the choice, I get the, it. It's not the no, choice. I was going to say that. Yeah, it's not the choice. Um, and yet, it's one of the ways in which the Brexit referendum can mislead people because it looks like it's the choice. You know, if, it's, if you think it's the fundamental issue, and there are many Liberal Democrats for whom Brexit is a more important issue than being anti-Corbyn. But then people are given the options, which are revoke, second referendum, some softer deal, some harder deal, no deal, and so on. You know, there is unquestionably a core of people who want to stop Brexit not at any price, but at almost any price. But there is no way to... Re- I agree with you. There's no way to reach those people through this electoral system. There might be under a different electoral system. And there might be a way of framing it under a different electoral system. But then it wouldn't be revoke as an issue because we'd be in a different way of making parliamentary decisions. But under this electoral system, that was a mistake. But I don't think it's even just the electoral system. It's electoral geography. It's the fact that the Remain vote is more geographically concentrated than the Leave vote. Uh, is and you've got to then factor in the people who would prefer remain but actually are respect the referendum people and that they may be particularly respect the referendum people when they've got the Corbyn issue to judge as well and I think chasing strong remain of voters regardless of their other affiliations could never have succeeded either under the conditions of our electoral system or under the conditions of the distribution of leave and remain voters across the country. Next week, we're going to be putting out two episodes. It is election week. We're going to do one that will go out on election day itself with Anand Menon, who's the head of UK in a Changing Europe, someone we've wanted to get on this podcast for a long time. He has been one of the most consistently interesting and insightful commentators on British politics for the last few years. And then we're going to do a morning after the night before episode on Friday in which we will react, as we've done on this podcast in the past, to what's just happened and see how we all feel about it. And to come after that, we're talking to Michael Lewis about American politics, and we've got a really exciting series we'll let you know about to go out over Christmas, American History to Make Sense of Now. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Um, uh, yeah, breakfast, breakfast, waffles, waffles. Uh,
Um, okay, I'm going to read you the names of the books on <laughs> Helen's shelf. So, Hitler by <laughs> Ian Kershaw. The Natural by Joe Klein, which I believe is about Bill Clinton. The Unwinding by George Packer. Nick Hornby. What is the complete the polysyllabic? Complete what is that? Alan de Botton, The Constellations of Philosophy. That's not a good book. I know. You have to understand where the, how the, the, these books also include books that aren't mine. I randomly collect other people when they don't want to get when they, they want to get rid of them. Taylor English History. That's a good book. Okay. Jane Austen's Letters. I imagine that's a good book. <laughs> The Final Days of Hitler? No. Oh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernie. Was that The Final Days of Nixon? It is, yeah. I imagine that's a terrifying <laughs> <laughs> Bottle of whiskey, the nuclear yeah. codes, it, a man yeah. in a paranoid, deranged yeah. delusion. What could go wrong? <laughs>